every one of us can, can in the next moment, use this understanding. My friend, my family member is going through something. I'd be stupid to think that I know what they're going through. And therefore, the only thing that I could possibly, the, the most important thing that I could possibly be, is be there for them. Hold space. Be there for them. Welcome to Spiritually Hungry. Excited about today's topic, as always. Today we're going to talk about friendship. Friendship and showing up. So in a previous episode, you referenced the Beautiful Times opinion piece by David Brooks. It's called, How Do You Serve a Friend in Despair? Love this, because a lot of people don't talk about this side of friendship. It's a very raw article. And it sparked a lot of conversation and thoughts that we want to share. In one of the episodes that we did live previously, somebody brought up a question uh, that they had a friend with addiction and how do you show up? So we're going to cover that kind of angle. So in David Brooks' opinion, he shares about his thoughts and feelings in the wake of the death of his lifelong friend. His friend struggled with depression and ultimately took his own life. And I love this because I think this really, I mean, we could end the podcast here. Obviously, we're not. But Brooks explains that he now realizes his friend needed him to hear him, not heal him. So we're excited to talk about what it means to be a friend, how to be a good friend when a friend is in crisis, and how do we know when to say something to do something and to step in. And every situation is difficult. And it's not about fixing somebody. It's about showing up for them. And, and sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's just holding space. Sometimes it's being tough. Sometimes it's about holding space and space. And sometimes it's something in between. And if I can. And I, you will. Yes. <laughs> what I think for me, what, what I was really inspired by this piece. Is Are you that, still eating a Tootsie Roll? I am. Why don't you, you just hear chew that? it? I'm distracted. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I thought nobody would notice. Nobody mm, <laughs> You noticed? <laughs> it's okay. I have a little lisp this time. What's wrong? When I was inspired by the piece, <laughs> is this going to bother you? I think you have to take it out of your mouth. Or chew it. I'll just swallow it. What a waste. No, don't swallow it. It's a waste of calories. Here's the garbage can. No, do not throw that. There, there we go. Our listeners are going to be very entertained if they get to watch this on the edit. Going to. So this is my my agenda: just get the Tootsie Roll out of your mouth. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. <laughs> Partially. Anyway, what I was inspired by this piece, and for me, it's a much bigger topic than. Now I was going to say just, although even if it was just about how to be there for friends that are going through difficult times, but for me, it's actually the secret of friendship because the biggest mistake I think that we make instant friendship, this is in relationship, this is in life, is that we view everybody else as us, so that how I want to be treated is how I will treat somebody else. And that is almost, not never the case, but almost never the case, because every other person is very different from me. And and to be able to get into that space where... Well, it's kind of like the five languages of love, right? How does a person like to receive? How do they like to give? Exactly. Yeah, I was going to cover that too. You're jumping exactly. the gun. No, no, but but I think again, but the view is, but I think it's so important because this really is transformational. If you want to be a good husband, wife, partner, person, friend, what you have to do is really try to put yourself in a space where you can really feel, experience what the other person is experiencing, and then interact with them, support them in that way. And and, and I think it's. Again, it's, it's hard, and it's it's but, both hard but so fundamental. Again, yeah, we we usually don't fail. consider friendships to be that. It's more about an exchange of how 
we get our needs met. Yeah, unless and, you're yeah, thoughtful. No, no, no and even if. But my point is, and this is where I think even a person who's more thoughtful than that, and and wants to be there for their friend, or simply wants to be a good friend, or a husband, or it's always almost always within the context of what I would want. So I will share with you in the way that I would want to be shared mm-hmm. with. And that is sometimes good, but but oftentimes not the perfect way to to be a friend, to be a spouse, to be a person. And that's why, for me, what what inspired me so much about this piece is that yes, it deals, it gives us insight on how to deal with somebody, with a friend who's really struggling, in this case with real depression, but also how to be a person, how to be a friend in general, how to be a spouse in general. Yes. So. Before we unpack all that, because I agree and I I intend on covering that as well, uh, sometimes it's confusing though, right? Because how do you show up for someone when they don't even necessarily want you to, especially somebody who is going through something like depression or any mental affliction, specifically, if they've dropped off the face of the earth, let's say, because of an addiction or depression or just in a place where they can't receive friendship, are you still friends? And obviously, we're going to say the answer to that is yes. But you might be asking yourself, do I have a role here? And if yes, what is my role? Right? I think that's where people, I don't think it's coming from a lack of care. I think often people don't know how to show up for oh, people. For sure. So, for instance, if somebody loses a parent or even a child, right? It's so painful, right? Even the idea of it for somebody who's not experiencing it. And then to see somebody that they care about experience it, it's almost too overwhelming. Yeah, and I'd say for me, it's interesting when I when I think about. I mean, obviously, in in the life that we live, we have the opportunity, and I do call it an opportunity, to to show up for people, especially when they're going through difficult times, you know, disease, death of a family member. But I would say that naturally, for me, my natural instinct always was, if somebody's going through a really bad time, take a step back to give them their space to go through it. And and you realize, and I certainly realize this now, that 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 it's that's almost never the right thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting because I was thinking about this. You know, I think that we're fortunate to be in the positions we are because I think we give a lot of thought to how we want to show up for people and uh, make choices to do the do so for them. But I remember after we had Josh, our second son, and I found out that he had Down syndrome four hours after his birth, and so my closest circle, right? My closest friends, my best friend, my sisters, they didn't know how to help me because it scared them. Right. right? And, again, and to be clear, right, the word help, right? Because that's what they thought. They thought they need to help you probably. And right. I didn't need help. I didn't even know. I, I just was in pain at that time. I really could have just used somebody to just stand by my side and and I'm going to give some of those tools. But I remember and I and it dawned on me because a month after I had Josh, and um, and so I started to isolate myself because whenever I was around people that were my closest friends, family circle, I felt different and I felt awkward because it was uncomfortable and it made it a big deal. And that's I just didn't want it to be. I wanted life to be normal, and I had to figure out a way to embrace this thing I didn't accept, right? Expect. So I made a new friend at that time. Somebody who uh, many people. You know, she's a celebrity. It, and honestly, I could care less if she had a horn growing out of her head. Like I was so in my own world that nothing seemed bigger than than what I was going through, in a good way, in a healthy way, right? But anyway, we became really close for different reasons. But she was the only person that made it normal. It just wasn't a big deal. It was the first person I had spoken to 
in a month or two months after I had had Josh that was like, yeah, I was like, you know, it happened. It wasn't on my list of things that I thought would happen in this life. And it's great. I'm happy. I'm his mom and I'm going to figure this out. And she's like, yeah, it was not a big deal. And I found that so comforting, so refreshing. And I think it's more about that in, in ways that you, you show up. So I want to quote David Brooks again from the New York Times article. He said, I but learned... Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. <laughs> but you don't, really? <laughs> well, actually, I did. Because I just want to just do, really do strongly want to recommend to our listeners to read. We, we obviously can't get through it. It's a very long piece. It's like 3,500 words. And we're not, we, we're not, there's no point in us touching upon all of it. I do strongly recommend reading it and maybe even rereading it. I think reading it will make you a better person. I, get, I don't think I had to interrupt right now to, to tell anybody that. <laughs> well, but, you know, okay. you took my touchy roll. So. Yeah, sure. This is my payback. So as I was saying, um, this is an excerpt from the article. David Brooks said, I learned very gradually that a friend's job in these circumstances is not to cheer the person up. It's to acknowledge the reality of the situation. It's to hear, respect, and love the person. It's to show that you haven't given up on him or her, that you haven't walked away. And that's just so powerful. I think it's really hard to hear people. I think, again, the immediate reaction most people have when somebody they love is in pain is to fix it, help, find a solution. And there's some things that we will never be able to fix. We won't even know how to navigate that, but you can certainly hear them. You can hold space for them. And I had that lesson recently. Um, My mom had come to New York to visit and she was sharing different things about her personal life. And, uh, she shared some things and she was open about her personal life, her process. I did hold space for her, but also I thought we came to an agreement of what we both understood was the outcome of that conversation. She went back to LA, literally gets off the flight, talked to her a few hours later, and she brings up that topic and she's like gone in the completely other direction. I was like, wait, mom, I thought, I thought we, I thought we discussed this and you agreed that that's probably not the best choice. And She's like, I just want you to hear me. And I was like, oh my God, I can't like, and it's, it's hard, right? Especially if you feel like you've made progress, but it's still not our responsibility, our job, or really fair for us to take that place in people's lives. Yeah. Uh, if I can, I wanted to read a little bit earlier, earlier in the piece where he speaks about really in short terms, the, the process with his friend, uh, um, Peter Marks. So he says, over the years, Pete and I often spoke about the stresses he was enduring over the management of his medical practice. But I didn't see the depths of what he was going through until we spent a weekend with him in the spring of 2019. My wife noticed a change immediately. A light had gone out. Mm. There was an uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic flatness in his voice and a stillness in his eyes. One bright June afternoon, he pulled us aside and told us he wasn't himself. He was doing what he loved most, playing basketball, swimming in the lake, but he couldn't enjoy anything. He was worried for his family and himself and asked for our continued friendship and support. It was the first time I had seen seen such pain in him, where it turned out to be severe depression. I was confronted with a question for which I had no preparation. How do you serve a friend who is hit with this illness? Mm. I tried the best that I could, but Pete succumbed to suicide last April. This article flows from what I learned from those agonizing three years and that senseless tragedy. It reflects a hard education with no panaceas. And again, I think, you know, I I think for me, this piece is is more, this conversation, again, is more than just about friendship and friends in need. I think it's, it's a new, hopefully we can bring about for ourselves and for our listeners, 
a new perspective of how to be in life, how to be in life. That that our job, in spiritual terms, is to become. We say we are we are meant to become like the Creator, right? That what is the what is the force of the Creator in the world? It's a force that is that is thinking about everybody all the time and trying to be there in the way that is right for them. Exactly. You know, I was speaking to somebody uh, recently, and um, her father uh, drinks a lot, and uh, by a lot, I mean like two bottles of wine a night. If there were three, there would be three, and it's starting to show up physically, not in in a medical way, but like just by appearance, right? And the approach is really that his wife is like, if you don't do this, I'm going to leave, and he don't like. And and I my advice, right, was there's obviously some kind of lack. There's something, some void that he's trying to fill. And by being lectured or being told it's not right or that I'm, or, or threats even, is not going to change his mind, what other options are there? My advice was, why don't you try to introduce him to other things that are healthy? Why don't you participate in that with him? Why don't you show him the change and be there by his side? through whatever lack he's experiencing because we never understand why people harm themselves right how they get into the situations they do and a lot of it again addiction mental illness that's not even in their control so i think that tough love approach never really is going to it's going to make a person feel even lonelier and i said the more you tell him not to drink you know what he's going to do he's going to go and hug the bottle even more because that's where he feels that he can escape and especially when it's uncontrollable and that's why i think a big m- mistake that we often make, and this is in great ways and small ways, whether it's with addiction, whether it's with depression, is that we, yeah, we think, oh, you know, why can't I, if he loves me enough, why can't he snap out of it right. for me? Or we judge the person for being in the situation they're in. Exactly. And when we judge something, we don't understand it. We're certainly not going to be able to give the right advice. You know, I talked about my father, how when he had an anorexia completely malnourished, wouldn't been recommended by any doctor for me to hike the Grand Canyon rim to rim in one day. He was a diabetic. He never lectured me. He didn't say it was a bad idea. He stood there by my side. What I found interesting is that years later when he had a benign brain tumor, he wanted it removed right away. It wasn't the obvious choice, even for the doctors, um, something to watch. Oh, really? The doctors were? No, he, but he once he knew he had it, he couldn't think of anything else. Like He wanted it out of his brain. So he decided he rushed the operation. He had a plan. And I remember being not very supportive because I didn't agree with his plan of action. And then I caught myself and said, wait a second, where are you now? This man who was so unconditional for you when you were in your darkest days, didn't judge you, didn't lecture you, stood by your side and created a safe space for me. I think a lot of friendship is helping people that you love feel safe when they're in the depths of darkness. And then I realized, I was like, wait, Monica, you know what? Not okay. Because years before that, a family friend was going through a similar situation. I was also, I didn't judge her, but with my father, right? So I was like, okay, what's going on here? And I realized that and I stopped and I, I showed up for him. I showed up and I held space. But I think a lot of it is if we're not experiencing what somebody is experiencing, and, and never, we cannot, right? Even right? We can maybe even sometimes. I always my my joke is, and I really think it's, this is a true thing. You know, when when you have a really bad stomachache, you know what that is, right? It's not the end of the world, but it re, it's really painful. And mm-hmm. that, and when your friend is having a, the, a bad stomachache, like, you can get a hot water no, or, bottle. Or even, or even if you try to <laughs> empathize, you'll never experience the same thing. So you'll never actually 
even if you've tasted the thing they're tasting it won't be the same yeah and it's and i think i think that's a really big part of it is that safety and holding space and i think again what you just said again is just so important because we do this all the time we do this all the time in that again even in our important relationships and even our unimportant relationships our judgment comes in unconscious ways and the, and limits how, how much will be there for somebody. Absolutely, because we're so sure we're right. They're not listening to us. So I'm going to wash my hands of it. Let them figure it out. Tough love. I remember when I was really in the throes of anorexia. My best friend, who was 20 years older than me, and her husband was 20 years older than her, and they didn't live. They lived many miles from where I did, and. He said, oh, you know, come stay with us for the weekend. I went there and he decided to have like the nastiest talk with me, the nastiest yeah, lecturing do I know me. The story? I don't, I, I didn't really share it. Like, really, like, oh, you're so selfish for doing this. And <laughs> I was like, and by the way, you know what I did? I, I didn't eat anything that whole weekend while I was at their house. I was like, I felt such do shame. I know like, this it was not, yeah, you did. Okay. And I, but I remember even at that age, even in the darkness that I was going through, I remember thinking, I'm never going to do this to somebody ever. I'm never, ever going to do this to somebody. It was so, cruel you know i guess he thought he thought he was helping he thought he was gonna snap me out of it right right he's gonna be the one so i i'd like to share again a little bit more from there because although he he's going to for and again for those of us thankfully who have never had a severe depression clinical depression he really paints i think a really important picture and what i'd like our listeners to get from this and myself as well isn't a greater understanding of depression which is important but just the the silliness of us ever thinking we understand what somebody else is going through and that like you just said i think that's the the underpinning that that's the reason in often in sub, subconscious ways that we allow ourselves not to really be there for our friends for our families for those that we care about mm-hmm. even and certainly for those that we don't i mean it's the same reason why when you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person many people will say oh well he should get a job or he or she should you know sort of right because again, we're 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 looking at the world and every person in it, close and far, with our own lens, which is which is a big mistake. So, for me, when when I when I share this this part of a, coming to a greater understanding about what in this case what his friend, but but what I would assume so many people uh, who sadly experience the disease of, the, of of clinical depression, is is again simply to to wake us up, all of us, to say. You will never be experiencing. You will never be understanding. You will never be seeing what somebody else is going through, and therefore try a different approach. The, well, so not, the only the, the the most important approach is to be there, right? So, over the next month, severe depression was revealed to me as an unimagined abyss. I learned that those of us lucky enough never to have experienced serious depression cannot understand what it is like just by extrapolating from our own periods of sadness which again i think is so important because again we what we say is oh i've i've felt sad so yeah and i felt even really sad so this just must be 100 degrees more of that it's not even it's not the same it's not of the same it's a different makeup as the philosophers cicely uh whiteley and jonathan birch have written it is not just sorrow it is a state of consciousness that distorts perceptions of time space, and self. The journalist Sally Brompton called depression a landscape that is cold and black and empty. It is more terrifying and more horrible than anywhere I have ever been, even in my nightmares. The novelist William Styron wrote brilliantly about his own depression in Darkness Visible. He wrote that the madness of depression is, generally speaking, the antithesis of violence. It is a storm indeed, 
but a storm of murk. Soon evident are the slow-down responses, near paralysis. Psychic energy throttled back close to zero, he continued. I experience a curious inner convulsion that I can describe only as despair beyond despair. It came out of the cold night. I did not think such anguish possible. Mm, like a nightmare. And again, and first of all, I think it's, it's a good education for all of us about what people with clinical depression go through. But more importantly, I would say, every one of us can, can in the next moment, use this understanding. My friend, my family member is going through something. I'd be stupid to think that I know what they're going through. And therefore, the only thing that I could possibly, the, the most important thing that I could possibly be, is be there for them. Hold space. To be there for them. So I thought this was really interesting too, in terms of different simple ways to show up for people. One is... Uh, oh, sorry, before you go into that? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. What, Where no? are you going? No, I just wanted to finish, like, fin- uh-huh. finish this thought. And, and so, related to what you were saying before about holding space, I think he just puts it in such beautiful words, it's worth, it's worth uh, hearing them. He said, I try to remind Pete of all the wonderful blessings he enjoyed, what psychologists call positive reframing. I've since read that this might make sufferers feel even worse about themselves for not being able to enjoy all the things that are palpably enjoyable. I learned very gradually that a friend's job in these circumstances is not to cheer the person up, it's to acknowledge the reality of the situation, it's to hear, respect, and love the person. It's to show that you haven't given up on him or her, that you haven't walked away. Mm-hmm. I think that's so beautiful. That's exactly what you're saying. Because, mm-hmm. and again, thankfully, I've never had to experience, or even as you experience anorexia, but it's so clear that it, they are living in a world we don't know. And therefore, the only thing we can be sure about that is helpful is to know, let them know that we're there. Period. Again, of course, as friends, as family, we want to help, but as clearly you've shared, that help can also sometimes be the opposite. When you say let them know we're there, it's not, I just want to be clear, it's just be there. It's just show up and be there. And it doesn't have to be these grand, sweet, I mean, yes, my father and I hiked the Grand Canyon, uh, but it doesn't have to be something like that. There's something called parallel play. And that is spending quality time doing things together, whether you take an exercise class together. Well, not if you're anorexic, Well, no, assume, I'm right, speaking but, yeah. generally. Yeah, okay. Going grocery shopping together, watch a movie. To, it's about doing things side by side. So again, that person doesn't feel like they're alone in what they're going through. And also the time you spend together is not focused on the lack, right? Because that, again, it's going to make somebody feel even more lonely. Another thing to do is to write down what you love about them or respect about them and offer small touches, as uh, David Brooks put it. He said, I wish I had bombarded Pete with more small touches, just small emails to let him know how much he was on my mind. Those kind of touches say, I'm with you, no response necessary. And honestly, that just brings tears to my eyes because we don't do that enough. I mean, I make it a practice. As soon as somebody comes through my mind, whether it makes sense or not, whatever, I just say, thinking of you, hope you're well, sending you love. I don't know what that does for somebody. And I don't even... You know, yeah. it's just about, for me, it's just anytime I've learned to hear, if somebody comes through my mind, a name, a thought, I just send, and by the way, I expect nothing in return. They might respond, they might not, but I just feel like it's something I'm called to do. And maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't, but it can never hurt. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very important point. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's beyond even the topic that we're talking about. But I think most of us hold ourselves back. 
from from sharing, whether it's appreciation, certainly whether it's love. And I've, I've shared this before in podcasts that I, I, I almost everybody I, I write to or text or email to, I always I almost always end with love. And sometimes I feel a little bit self-conscious. You know, I'm, we're not that close, but I don't care, right? I'd rather be over effusive. <laughs> I do sometimes. But, I'm like so used to sending like heart emojis, whatever. I do it a lot because I want people to love. But sometimes like new people that I just talked to, and I'm like, and I go back, I'm like, why did I put a heart emoji? That's so <laughs> awkward. But I'm like, whatever, I don't care. Exactly. But, yeah. So what I, what, I, what I would say to our listeners is, Again, by the way, it's not always going to be received well. But there's going to be those times where you know, where you know, you 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 said I love you, or or you you shared how appreciative you are of them, or something that they've done, and it won't be received. But that that's not the point. The point is, I and I I can say this about myself. I want to be somebody who is as effusive as possible for good things, whether it's received well or not received well. And I would really encourage our listeners. That's who you want to be in life. You want to be that person. Who remembers and appreciates and shares your appreciation? You want to be the person who loves and gives love, whether it's and you're not doing it again, like you said, for how it will be received. You're that's who you want to be. That's who we want to be. Exactly. You know, I think that if people hold themselves back, like you said, the one thing you will likely be left with is regret. And I was watching. Um, a Dateline episode. Oh, great. You know, I love Dateline, <laughs> and it was uh, it was that one was titled "She Did Everything Right." They're a little dramatic, but yes, and it was about <laughs> that might clearly be the, she didn't do that, everything. That, that, that might be the understatement <laughs> of the decade. That so uh, you this, think Dateline is sometimes uh, a little bit dramatic. <laughs> so it's the story of Lauren. You ever see the Saturday Night Live skits about? Uh, no, but it's funny because it'll be like. <laughs> They lived a perfect life. I know. Perfect, By the way, that's, house, and they and they were they the had, model couple. And then you find out he killed clearly her. Clearly yeah. not. <laughs> clearly not. Anyway, we, I don't know it's if usually the it. men that kill. But it's, way, it's always, I think we joked about this. But it's always like they had the, exactly they had the perfect life. Yeah. yeah, sure. So it's the story of Lauren McCluskey, and what what really struck me is the way her friends felt about what they said, what they didn't say, how much they showed up for her. So basically. As they said it on Dateline, she had so much promise. <laughs> she was nerdy, but pretty senior year in college. Like she was just an academic, never had a boyfriend. And then her senior year, she uh, went to a bar or something and there was a bouncer at the door. He started flirting with her. They had a relationship. He was about six years older than her. First boyfriend, very serious. And then he started to get more possessive and obsessive. And one day she was looking... I know she would, I think they moved in together. She found his wallet. She found out he was really 16 years older than her and that he had been in prison before and he was out on probation and he was charged with being a sex offender. So once he started, so she broke up with him and then he started stalking her. So she called the campus, the Utah campus police multiple times. Then they sent her on a goose chase. Nothing really happened. Then she ended up going to Salt Lake City police they sent her back to the campus place, back and forth, back and forth. Her friends knew what were going on. Bottom line, he showed up at her dorm and he killed her. And after, they were all with like, why didn't I step up? Why didn't I do more? Why wasn't I with her? Why didn't we make sure that the police were on it? Like, And then, you know, and I think probably David Brooks has, obviously, he wrote this piece. So you will be met with regret at some point if you don't, you know, listen to that like gut feel and go the extra mile. Show up be there. It's not about what you say to the person or not. It's just, again, showing up for them in those ways. Yeah, but uh, again, and so we're talking about the obviously extreme, the, 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 that's an extreme case. Is but, it? Okay. Uh, that 
every one of us has many opportunities in a day, like you said. And I, I just had the thought, I mean, as you were talking, that person you were talking about who made you feel normal, you know, if I were you, I would just send text, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, you know, 20, whatever it was, 20 years ago, you, you know, and 21. so 21 years ago. And my point is, I think that we will live a more. It's funny, I dreamt of her last night. Oh, well, that's very funny. Mm-hmm. We will live a much more full life the more we put ourselves out there in small ways. You know, by the way, you might not remember this. Two years ago, you did something I really appreciated. You know, and and so on and so forth. So, but but back, but but in in the more extreme cases, like like the one that you just shared, and David Brooks. Again, I, I'd like Warren to. Warren McCluskey. Yes, I'd like to share again what he writes about this in, in in everything that similar to everything you said. If I'm ever in a similar situation, I'll know that you don't have to try to coax somebody out of depression. It's enough to show that you are trying to understand what this troubled soul is enduring. It's enough to create an atmosphere in which the sufferer can share her experience. It's enough to offer him or her the comfort of being seen, which is exactly the words that you said, and exactly what you were really desiring when you were going mm-hmm. through through anorexia. Mm-hmm. Everything else made me feel so alone. I feel sorrow that I didn't know enough to do this more effectively with Pete. I might have kept him company more smooth, soothingly. I might have been. I might have made him better understand what he meant to me, but I do not feel guilt. And I think this is, again, as I said, for me, I find this so inspiring. If we can, again, be there in, 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 in small ways and great ways, but be there. Don't try to, to treat somebody else as, as, as you do yourself, as you would want yourself to be treated, or you think you would, yourself would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. I had another memory of like, oh God, whatever people sure, just really. Sure. I think people would. No, we were, I once at a at an event, and I think that I had even lost more weight leading up to that event or whatever. And but anyway, we're at the dining room, I'm about to take like a bite of food, and someone comes up behind me, and they thought they meant well, and he said, "You better eat something." Like, look at and I, I literally like spit the food out, and that was it for that meal. It was like this is not. But you know, again, I think people mean well, but. It's about being more aware. So I think ultimately friendships are an investment in the sense that we put energy in and we receive back. But sometimes our friends aren't in a position to give back. And I think that we don't really think about that usually. So I have to make a conscious decision about what kind of friend I want to be and set aside what I want to receive from a friendship. I think that's really hard for a lot of people. I remember I had a best friend for 20 years and I was often disappointed by her because even in the first in, in, the, in the beginning throughout yeah. she it consistently i think i got more disappointed as, as time went on there were different things as we grow as we change you know sometimes people feel threatened whatever the case was but i i felt her almost withholding for her own she had lack right and so i think she wasn't able to give to me uh the way that she used to People change, but I still loved her. And I remember I came to a point where I realized that I want to be a friend that shows up for people, remembers their birthday, gives them gifts, tells them I care, because that's who I want to be. And then I asked myself the question, if she gives you none of those things in return, is she still, for me, worthy of receiving my love and my affection? The answer was yes, because I loved her. And it taught me so much about friendships. And I think that most people don't go through life like that. So now when I have a friend, uh, it's more about me showing up for them than things that I take. There's very few people. I think it's just you and our kids and one or two other people 
my mom that I'll be able to ask for something or allow myself to really receive openly, right? And for the most part, with everybody else, it's really, you know, how can I offer? And it, it really, it makes me happy. And I don't feel, it's not like, you know, I'm never disappointed. It's not, I know they love me. It's just that people can give in, in ways that wherever they're at, right? So it was very freeing and liberating when I got there. At first it was painful, but then when I reframed it, it was really powerful. And I think that when it comes to friendship, it really is about loving somebody for their essence and giving to them in the ways that are true to you, like purely, right? Showing up for them in ways when they need, even if they're not there for you. And your father, the Rav said to me years ago, once a friend, a friend for life. And I didn't understand it right away. Then when this friendship, the 20 year friendship uh, broke down, whole another story, another time, happy to go into it. But I remember I still gave to her. And I remember like years later, we met each other, we bumped into each other on a street corner and we ended up talking for 45 minutes catching up as if we were like we were all along. And then we haven't spoken since. And I know if I ran into her again, it would be that. I know that if she called me tomorrow and said, I need you, I would jump on a plane because that's what your father meant when he said, once a friend, a friend for life. If somebody held space for you, which she did, if somebody was there for you and, and, and really there for you in times of need, in a process that you went through, it doesn't matter if you stay friends forever. It's that they will always be your friend. Absolutely. You know, and I often have conversations with people who are going through a difficult time in their friendship, their friends disappoint them, and, and, and often they're 100% right in, in what they're disappointed in, in, in that their friend didn't treat them right. I'm always, and I'm a big proponent of fighting. Fight, again, if somebody doesn't want to be a friend, he's not, not going to be a friend. But, but in those times when you're disappointed, in those times when your friend has really let you down, at least in your opinion, and even if it's one hundred percent true, I'm a, I'm such a big proponent of that, and you know I, I've shared this before. Certainly, as as the years go by, I appreciate friendship even more. And this next section that I'm going to share, I think is is can't be seen as sad, but I think it's often important to appreciate what what life is like when you lose something to appreciate it when you have it. So my hope is not to, you know, for this to be sad, but for it to be hopefully an inspiration for all of us in all of our friendships to to really go beyond maybe what we've done up until now. So he writes, I feel like I've read a lot about the grieving process for family members, but not so much about the, what grieving is like when your friends die. Death and I were too well acquainted last year. I lost three good friends, mm -hmm. Pete, Mike Gerson, and my longtime NewsHour partner, Mark Shields. I've been surprised by how profound and lasting the inner aches have been. Mm. Pete's death has been a cause of great disorientation. He'd been a presence for practically my whole life, and now the steady friendship I took for granted is gone. It's as if I went to Montana and suddenly the mountains had disappeared. Mm. One great source of comfort has been the chance to glimpse from time to time how heroically Pete's boys, Owen and James, have handled the, this loss. In their own grief, they have rallied forcefully and lovingly around their mother. Two months after Pete's passing, my eldest son married. To my great astonishment and gratitude, Jen and the boys were able to make the trip to attend. At the reception, the boys gently coaxed their mother to join us on the dance floor. It felt appropriate, since this is what we did at camp, dancing through the decades of our lives, 
I have a sharp memory of those two fine young men dancing that evening, and a million. It's a. <laughs> this is my favorite line. And a million memories of the parents who raised them so well. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Friendship's powerful force. And again, friendship is not right. Friendship is, is partners, is, is husbands, is wives. Is that I think that if we can inspire our listeners to push themselves even more in times uh, when a friend is going or or a family member is going through a difficult time or when uh, they're disappointing, our lives will be better for it for sure. And I believe also the world will be better for it. So <laughs> we hope you are inspired by this and i hope i didn't make anybody <laughs> sad by uh no, I think it's by cool. but yes as always please continue to share this podcast with everybody you know <clears throat> please uh go to apple podcasts write five star reviews and continue to send your questions stories comments topics to monica and michael at kabbalah.com we read all the emails that you send, and often we share them, the stories, and certainly build our podcast based on the topics that you share. So please continue to send all of your thoughts and stories and inspirations to Monica and Michael at Kabbalah.com. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as we enjoyed recording it. Stay spiritually hungry.